Charismatic, passionate, has integrity, humble, servant, faithful, inspiring, persevering, positive, flexible, driven. This is who we are that call ourselves leaders. Helping business leaders grow themselves, their team, and their profits. This is the Entree Leadership Podcast. Now, here is your host, Ken Coleman. Coming to you from the Music City, this is the podcast of leaders, by leaders, and for leaders. I'm Ken Coleman, and you can connect with us on Twitter. I'm at Ken Coleman, and of course, the mothership brand at Entree Leadership. We'd love to hear from you. We're loving your emails and feedback. You can do that podcast at entreeleadership.com. Podcast at entreeleadership.com. Coming up in this podcast, our feature conversation is with Dan Pink. Dan is the author of the long-running New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind and Drive. His latest book to sell as human is also a number one New York Times bestseller, and it will be the focus of our conversation this episode. And stay tuned, because after the conversation, we're going to give away five more free books. In fact, five copies of To Sell is Human. So stay tuned for that. As soon as the conversation is over, we will give you instructions on how to do that. And uh, I've got to announce very quickly here the winners of the Charles Duhigg book, Power of Habit. We did something we'd never done before. We said, hey, we want you to tweet that the Entree Leadership Podcast is a good habit. And we had a ton of people do that. Eric Anthony, our producer, put all the names in a hat and he drew out five winners. I've got the winners here. I want to just congratulate Andrew Olison, Justin Stearns, Daniel Brunson, Chad Ingalls, and Buddy again. I hope I'm saying that right, Buddy. I am hooked on phonics, but that is a tough last name. Please forgive me, Buddy, if I'm wrong on that. But congratulations to our winners of The Power of Habit. All right, folks, I am really excited to tell you about a brand new event. In fact, no one else has heard about this event yet except for you, podcast listeners. The Entree Leadership Summit, brand new event, May 2015. Dave Ramsey has put together an all-star cast for three days at the beautiful Omni LaCosta Resort in the San Diego area. The exact date's May 11th through 15th. So write those down, May 11th through 15th at the Omni LaCosta Resort in San Diego. That's next spring. It's going to be unbelievable. Here's the lineup. John Maxwell, Pat Lencioni, Dr. Henry Cloud, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Dave Ramsey and Chris Hogan. Going to be an unbelievable event. Christy Wright will also be joining. This is going to be a, an event like we've never done before. Three days in San Diego, and no one else has heard about it yet. So we've just released the details at entreleadership.com slash summit. That's entreleadership.com slash summit. We want you listeners of the podcast to get a shot at this first. More details coming up. It's going to be an incredible event, so go check it out. EntreLeadership.com slash summit. Now, coming up in just a few minutes, an excerpt from our very own Chris Hogan on sales. This is our theme of this podcast, selling, closing the deal. In fact, the lesson is entitled Death of a Salesman. And we're going to give you just a couple of minutes of that and then a special offer you don't want to miss. We're giving away all kinds of free stuff today. And uh, so you want to stay tuned for that. But I'm very excited because joining me in the studio today, one of our own, one of my favorite people at Entree Leadership, John Falcons, who is our director of coaching. Those of you who are all access members, 
members are very familiar with John Felkes. John, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me here, Ken. I appreciate it. Well, it's always good to have you here. Uh, real quick, for people who may not have uh, met you on previous podcasts or they need to be reintroduced to you, obviously you're the director of coaching and right. we have a very popular e-coaching program as a part of All Access, but tell people what you do day to day. Basically, what I do is I help people take what Dave and Chris and Christy teach in Entree Leadership and apply it to their business successfully. There it is. That's what that's what we spend our that's day doing. That's a fun job. It is. And, you know, Ken, a big part of that is sales, and we work so hard at doing that well. And I'm a little nervous, to be honest with you, because I've come over here, and it sounds like you're just giving stuff away left and right. You know, I've yeah. got people in the that other is, building that, that are working hard to sell it, and, <laughs> and you're just giving, giving it away. It away. Well, we what have, is going on, Well, man? I got to tell you, it, this would be awkward had I not gotten this approved from Daniel Tardy. Oh, okay. So you okay. need to take that up with Tardy, uh, <laughs> okay, all right. uh, Director of All Things Entree Leadership. But we are really giving a lot of fun stuff away. Yeah, that's and, awesome. And, and let's talk about this, because you were in the room for Chris Hogan's lesson, Death of a Salesman, yep. at a recent Entree master series event we'll talk more about that event later mm -hmm. but uh this is a this is a great lesson and so we thought we'd go into the old archives and you approve this we got a couple of minutes here we're going to play okay. uh it, briefly here in just a minute but i want you to kind of set that up what is the overall philosophy if you will of entree leadership when it comes to sales the the overall philosophy is that we sell by serving mm -hmm. if you are serving people well if you're connecting their need with your product and your offering, and that's a good fit, then you're helping them and the sale becomes natural. And that's what Chris, you know, throughout that entire lesson really helps people understand. There it is. And when we come back from this excerpt, we've got a special offer because this entire lesson costs a good chunk of change. Yeah. But don't tell me. We're going to give it away. Here we go. We are going to give it away for two weeks only before our next podcast comes out. You're going to have two weeks to download this, and it's totally free. Uh, but we want to encourage people mm. on this overall philosophy, serving people, knowing that it's going to turn into sales. That's right. And so without any further ado, our very own Chris Hogan, you all know him and love him. So this is just a smidge of Chris Hogan's lesson called Death of a Salesman. Every day something's happening, it's a sale. And I don't know why sales has got a negative rap because we all know it happens. It's a matter of what? Finding a need and meeting that need. So you look at it, sales gets a bad rap because it gets manipulative or pushy. That's what we're not looking for. We don't want that. What you wanna do is make it smooth and where you're understanding a client's needs or wants and you're showing them how your product or service helps to meet that need. And it's, you need to make sure you're aware of that. If your sales team is being manipulative or pushy, you need to make sure that, hey, hold on, no, that's not how we do this. Because they need to understand that they're representing your company and your product and your service. So they need to make sure that they're selling your way in a way that's acceptable for you. Anytime you buy something from a good salesperson, it's a lot of fun. It's about making that experience happen, being connected, and it's a pleasurable experience. We know what we don't want. We know the negative side of that. But if you can get your sales team to start to look at this and say, you know what, make it an experience. Make it so people are understanding exactly what you're looking for and they'll start to enjoy it as well. Sales is the oldest, the world's truly oldest profession. It's persuasion. You're trying to help people help themselves, the way I say it. You want them to understand, hey, my product or service will meet this need. Now, 
based on how they respond to that, it may take a little bit more time to walk through it, but that's truly what you're trying to do. And we all know selling is the highest paid profession with the most advancement potential. The entree leader sees business differently, especially in sales. It's a different ball game. Too many times you probably have competitors out there that are looking at sales as just this transactional thing. If I can push widgets out, then I'm doing, I'm being successful and I'm getting stuff done. The entree leader sees it a little bit different. It's about the relationship because that's what you want. If you serve a customer really well and you take care of them, they're going to refer people to you. If you take care of them, what you've got now is a customer for life, literally. We have worked with clients here. We've worked with multi-members of their family because they know what they're getting when they come and they deal with us here. They know they're going to be cared for. They're going to be respected. We don't see people as just a number. It's a relationship. So get your team to start to think that way as well. You're not just trying to close a sale. We're trying to have a relationship with this customer. So you look at this. The entree leader teaches their team. We're going to serve, not sell. That's an important reminder. An entree leader is intelligent and intentional about their selling process. You want to make sure it's, they know exactly how do you want your product sold? How do you not want your product sold? A servant sale will gain a customer for life. Wow, good stuff there from Chris Hogan. As I mentioned, just an excerpt of a recent lesson, Death of a Salesman, that he gave at our Entree Leadership Master Series. We'll tell you a little bit more about that special event. But John Falcons, uh, when you hear that, that reminds you of so much that we teach in this building. Thoughts on what Chris Hogan just shared with us? Well, you know, it is the core of what we, you know, we, we talked about this before we played the excerpt that the selling by serving is the core of what we teach around selling. But as I listened to that, I, I just wanted to keep going because I know there's so much more that he unpacks about communication and how to look at things from the buyer's perspective and how to pace sales and all these uh, great insights that Chris has developed over the years. There's just so much in that lesson that's so helpful about sales. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to give away the entire lesson. Now, I'm told by my producer here, Eric Anthony, that this is normally $199. Can you verify that, John? Yeah, I. but I'm not, still, I'm not comfortable I, with I know this, right? This not. is about sales, and you're just giving it away. Yes, we are, because okay. we want these people to sell more. So I know no you're not the, happy no about it. No wonder the podcast has taken off like crazy right. since you've been at the, the I, helm. I am a man of the people, and, and I love to give <laughs> well, the people so, so what we. they want and what so, they need. So are we. Yeah, this is awesome. Yeah, John is actually not scrooging out on you. He's no. just having fun. But here's what you do. It's normally $199 <laughs> for the video lesson, and we are offering it for free to you folks for about two weeks. Awesome. We release a podcast every two weeks. And so for the first two weeks of this Dan Pink podcast, uh, we're going to give this away at entreeleadership.com forward slash sales. All right, let me repeat that. entreeleadership.com slash sales. You can go download this lesson, and I know it's going to encourage you. And so we just want to give that away to you. No strings attached. You're not going to have to give us anything. We just want you to go uh, and, and take part of this great content, and we know you'll love it. By the way, I want to mention you can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Hogan 360. Hey, well, yeah, go can, ahead. I, can I say something, Ken, about of that? Of course. You know, what's so exciting to me about that is if you will take that lesson yeah. and absorb it and really apply it to your business, everything that Chris teaches, 
What's exciting to me about it is, is that's going to revolutionize the sales in your business. It's going to make a difference. This isn't just a, a mental exercise. That's right. You take the stuff he teaches, and it will skyrocket your sales. That's right. So we want you to take part in that. And let's just keep this thing going, John. Dan Pink, I know you admire him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really excited to get guys like Dan Pink on the line with us. They're very, very busy. Of course, we mentioned his accolades earlier on. But this book, To Sell as Human, obviously was a number one New York Times bestseller, but it really begins to strip down perceptions, habits, and it begins to look forward at, hey, how do we sell? How has the landscape culturally changed to where we have to change in how we sell? Because the reality is, is if you're listening right now and you say, Ken, I'm in operations. I don't sell anything. (laughs) You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. And Dan Pink will illuminate how you're wrong, but encourage you. Mm -hmm. And so let's get right to it. This is my conversation with New York Times bestselling author of To Sell This Human, Dan Pink. Well, Dan, great to have you with us. I want to get right to this. When we look at the book, To Sell as Human, and we think everyone who listens to this podcast should get the book if they have not already, there are a couple big thoughts here that you unpack in this book. I want you to give us a summary of those. Sure. There are two ideas that catalyze the book. One is that, like it or not, we're all in sales. Uh, If you look at how people spend their time, they're spending a huge portion of it selling. Uh, it might be that they're selling their specialty can opener or their consulting services or their pies at a farmer's market. But more of us, if you look at people who aren't selling directly, that for a direct exchange of cash, we're spending a huge portion of our time in things that are kind of sort of like selling, persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling, all those sorts of things. And so idea number one is, like it or not, we're all in sales. But the second idea derives from that. Um, which is that selling isn't what it used to be. Uh, As you know, selling has a very bad reputation. But I think that's because of some particular factors in the environment, in the economy, the way that, that, that affected what selling was like until very recently. And so I actually think that now selling isn't what it used to be and that you can now be effective in persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling others and do it in a way that is... Uh, effective, but also not full of fleasebaggery. That's and right. So in the book, I, I talk about looking at, as you, as you mentioned, social science, what are the qualities that are necessary to be effective in this world where we're all selling, but selling is something very different, and then what are the, some of the particular skills that are necessary to deploy. So the idea is to give people a different way to look at what they do, a different way to look at what selling is, but then really zero in and give them some very specific evidence-based things that they can do to be more effective. Yeah, I want to follow that up because that's a terrific point, and, and you specifically dive into this idea that always be closing, which anybody who's ever been around sales has heard that age-old phrase, and, and that right. represents exactly what you just said. That doesn't work anymore, and one of the main reasons you say this is true is that people are just more informed now. You can't just snooker somebody anymore. Yeah, that's the key idea, exactly. Um uh, you know, most of what we know about sales has come from a world of information asymmetry. That is, the seller always knew more than the buyer. So if you think about, you know, the quintessential American sales transaction, buying an automobile, uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, yeah. if you went in to buy a car, the car dealer would know a lot more about cars than you ever could. It would, you know, let's say you're buying a Toyota Camry. That car dealer would know a lot more about cars, a lot more about Toyotas, a lot more about Camrys than you ever could. This is why we have the principle of buyer beware, because 
buyers are on notice. You know, you're at a disadvantage. The seller has the edge. Watch yourself. That's what whole, the whole buyer beware is about. Um, information asymmetry. This is a reason why we think of sales as sleazy, because we're used to being on the short end of that asymmetric relationship. Well, in a remarkable change, we've gone from this world of information asymmetry to a world much closer to information parity, where the seller and the buyers are much more evenly matched. And again, go back to buying a car. You go buy a car today, you can know as much about cars, as much about Toyotas, as much about Camrys as that car dealer. <laughs> you can right. go in there and say, I know what every dealer in Nashville is charging for this Camry. Mm. You can go in there with the factory invoice price of the car. Um, you can go in having a very good sense, precise sense of what your trade-in is worth. And so if you're selling in that kind of environment where buyers and sellers are evenly matched, you have to do it in a different way. Yes, and this is why this book, To Sell as Human, is so, so important to our reading these days. And I love, there's so much we want to cover. So I'm going to kind of go through the high points, folks, because again, if you haven't gotten the book, I want you to run, go get it. It's absolute mandatory reading. Uh, let's talk about a couple things. I'm a question nerd. I wrote a book about questions that, Dan, you're in the book. And I want you to talk about the two irrational questions that you oh, point uh -huh. out, because I love these. This is how we could persuade people. Well, I mean, as you know, Ken, you know, questions have a peculiar power. Um, and it's important let's, to understand that first. We, we don't use questions enough as a persuasive tool. Mm. Um, uh, and questions can become a very effective technique for persuasion in certain circumstances. So this is an idea, these two irrational questions. It come from a guy named Mike Pantalon at Yale University. He is a, a psychologist there, a clinical psychologist. He, uh, so let's say you're trying to get somebody to do something. So let's say you're trying to get, uh, let me think of a good example here. You're trying okay, to oh, here's get, one, here's one. I'm trying to get yeah. my 8-year-old to play a sport this fall, and, and you know what I mean, instead of take a, a season off, if you will. I'm trying to get him to play a sport. I don't care what sport, but I want him to play a sport. Got it. Okay, great one. Okay, so you're trying to get your 8-year-old to play a sport. So, um, so you say to your 8-year-old, question number one, uh, how ready are you to play a sport uh, this fall, on a scale of 1 to 10. 1, I'm not ready at all, and I'm ready to do it right now. Mm. Now, since he doesn't want to do it, he's not inclined to do it, uh, he'll probably say, uh, Dad, I'm a 3. Now, that's the first question. Now, the second question is the one that always gets people, and the second question is this. Okay, that's fine, you're a 3. Why didn't you pick a lower number? Now, that always surprises people. Instead right. of saying, why didn't you pick a higher number, what's wrong with you, blah, 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 um, you say, why don't you pick a lower number? Now, what happens there is he might say, you know, the reason I didn't pick a lower number, uh, you know, why aren't you a two? Well, I'm not a two because, you know, I recognize that being on a team is actually kind of fun for me. I, I recognize that I actually like cross-country. I like to run, and being on the cross-country team could be kind of interesting to me. I know that I always feel better when I get a little, when I get run around and have some exercise, so being on a team would help me feel better. And, that, and so what happens there with those two questions is that he begins articulating his own reasons for doing something. And this is really the key point. When people have their own reasons for doing something, they're more likely to believe those reasons, they're more likely to do that behavior. And so this two-part question strategy from Michael Pantalon, on a scale of 1 to 10, how ready are you? And on um, whatever the number is, why don't you pick a lower number, can be a pretty effective technique. 
Right, because let's just let's just stay there for a moment, Dan. This allows us to uh, use the other people's words, the people we're trying to convince, to persuade. It's yeah. almost that it's almost that line from Dumb and Dumber. I can't even believe I'm saying this to Dan Pink, one of the smartest people <laughs> in the world. Uh, you know, you're telling me there's a chance. I mean, that's a little bit yeah, of what yeah. it is, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like that. Although that's a little delusional. It's really, it's actually. <laughs> It's actually better than that. What you're doing is, and this is, but you're on to a really, really important point. You know, if you look at the research on motivation as well, which is, you know, I wrote a book about motivation a couple years ago. If you look at the science of motivation as well as this, we tend to have a slightly twisted picture of what's happening here. Right. One of the scholars who I wrote about, you know, one of the legendary scholars in the subject of the field of motivation, a guy named Ed D.C. at the University of Rochester, Said, and I can quote him back exactly. He said, we got to get past this idea that motivation is something that one person does to another, when in fact it's something that people do for themselves. And the same thing is true with kind of persuasion and influence. Your job is, you know, our job is not to manipulate the other person, the other, to make the person do something that he doesn't want to do or she doesn't want to do. Our job is, is in, we're going to be much more effective. Let, leave aside the ethics of it. You're going to be much more effective if we can create the conditions where that person surfaces her or his own reasons for doing something. Mm. And so you're not trying to like flick a lever. What you're trying to do is get someone to think about their life in a new light and then do things for their own reason. Uh, that's really the key. Now, the other thing about this technique that I really like is it doesn't happen all that often, but let's say someone says on a scale of 1 to 10, how likely are they to do something? And the, and the person says, I'm a 1. Okay? Right. So you can't get a lower, or you can't get a lower number, it's not that useful. So when that happens, the response is, okay, fine, you're a one. Okay, there's no judgment there, you're a one. What could we do to make it a two? Now, I think in the case that you're giving, that actually could be the answer. What could we do to make it a two? Mm -hmm. And the person might say, um, oh, well, you know, I'm not experienced playing baseball, but... You know, if you could throw with me after school every once in a while, that would make it more likely. Right. Um, I'm not really, you know, I'm not a, you know, I don't have much experience, and so I might end up sitting on the bench, and I don't want you to come to games and be, you know, frustrated because I'm sitting on the bench the whole time. Right. And what, what you do there, if someone's a one, is that you begin to have a conversation about what are some of the obstacles. In most cases, you can, you know, the person who's doing the persuading can often remove those obstacles. Mm. You can say, yeah, I'll play catch with you, no problem. Of course, I don't expect you to be, you know, Mike Trout when you're, you know, playing baseball for your first season. That's right. Uh, yeah, you know, but you're eight years old, and so, you know, they'll, they, they'll let everybody play. So don't worry about that, and you're playing the sport for yourself, not for me. So, you know, I'm just happy to see you out there. And so that even, even someone giving that what, what seems to be a very obstinate, stubborn answer, I'm a one can actually surface, um, can, can lead you down the road of having that person discover his or her own reasons for doing something. Right. And this is so good because, I mean, this all goes together. And, and I love in the book that you write about the three rules for understanding other people's perspective, our customers, or again, whether this is just coworkers, whatever. I want you to talk about that, Dan. Just kind of touch on the three rules and, and why they're so valuable in helping us see through other people's glasses, if we will. Yeah, well, that's and that's the A in our in our new ABC. It was what I call attunement, uh, which is basic, which is the ability to see someone else's perspective, and that has become really essential 
in any kind of persuasive effort. So if you and I have the same access to the same information, I can't use my information advantage to try to persuade you. What I have to do, and it goes back to, Ken, to our, what we were talking about before, what I have to do is see the world from your perspective and see if we can reach common ground. Yeah. And if you look at some of the research, it's very, very interesting. The research shows some ways to do that. For instance, feeling powerful is often, a, often inhibits people's perspective-taking abilities. This is something that you see with bosses, especially. You know, when people feel powerful, their perspective-taking abilities typically degrade. So if you're a boss, what you should do is sort of lower your feelings of power, even though that seems kind of, what? What are you talking about? It doesn't mean you become a wimp or anything like that. It doesn't mean that you don't give, you know, direction. But in certain kinds of persuasive encounters, what you want to do is dial down your power a little bit. That will increase your ability to take someone else's perspective, find common ground, and get that persuasion done. Uh, another really important technique, as strange as it sounds, is, is mimicry. Uh, human beings are natural mimickers. If you look at people when they are having a conversation with someone that they, you know, who they're really interested in talking to, they tend to mirror each other's movements. It's not anything that's conscious. It's just a way that we understand each other. We, you know, take people's perspective in part by adopting some of their mannerisms and gestures and language. And so being a little bit more conscious of that and reflecting that back in a, you know, not an overt way can be really, really helpful. That's another really powerful technique for taking somebody's perspective. The, uh, the other thing that's really useful is, you know, if you talk about you have a lot of entrepreneurs who are in technical fields, and one of the ways that technical professionals go awry in persuading others, even in selling directly, is that they tend to use their own specialized vocabulary rather than the customer's language. And repeating the customer's language, using the customer's language, is enormously effective. There's a really brilliant study done in somewhere in Europe where, uh, that had to do actually with tipping, which is actually not all that common in Europe, but this is a place that had tipping. So they had waiters and waitresses. They had half the waiters and waitresses um, take the order as usual. They had half the waiters and waitresses repeat the order back word for word from the person who was making the order. Uh, the people who repeated the order back word for word, who mimicked their customer, uh, had tips 70, 70% higher. Hmm. Um, and the reason, you know, the reason for that is that, oh, you're listening to me. You, under, you do understand what I'm talking about. And so these very small, and, and what's great about this, what I love about this, is that this is not just stuff, you know, I picked out of a pickle barrel somewhere. Right. There's this very rich, <laughs> very rich body of evidence in social science. Um, study after study after study on mimicry, huge amount of research on mimicry, this idea of perspective-taking, a rich body of research on perspective-taking, too. And we can look at this evidence and do some very small things to become, in this case, more attuned and therefore more persuasive. Again, whether we're selling our idea, whether we're selling our product, whether we're selling our service, whether we're trying to get our eight-year-old not to lie around the house after school every day. That's right. Well, this is so good. And, and Dan, you have a great perspective because you've done this research and and you understand leaders, you speak to leaders, you've been in leadership, you've worked for leaders at a high level, and I, I want to camp out here for a moment, because you said a moment ago, whether we're selling an idea or a product or whatever, and I want to talk about selling vision, because I think for leaders who may not consider themselves great salespeople, they can miss 
I think, a terrific nugget of wisdom here that you just unpacked for us, and that's the idea of mimicking and, and really understanding our team's perspective, the other leaders that we lead with, because casting vision is so vital. I don't care how large the organization, whether it be in social work, in ministry work, in business, nonprofit, and beyond. Um, how can leaders take this idea that we've just been talking about, and really the book as a whole, and make themselves more attuned and become better vision casters? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good point. Obviously, there's a lot of evidence on the persuasive power of narrative of story. So we've gone, I mean, it's you know biblical in that way. We've gone from here to there, and now we're going to get across the river, and then we're going to look back on the other side. So I think that having that storytelling capacity, understanding that, that human beings see the world as a series of episodes, not necessarily as a series of logical propositions contained on a PowerPoint deck, is really important. I think a lot of people know that. If I can be a little bit more tactical here, there is a huge amount of research now showing that you want to persuade somebody, explaining why they're doing it in the first place is unbelievably powerful. Um, and one of the things that I've seen in leadership, and it could be leadership in any dimension, it could be leadership in terms of running a company, it could be leadership in terms of a teacher teaching in, a, in front of a classroom, it could be, go back to sports, it could be a coach, is that they tend to fixate on how. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to increase our sales this quarter. Here's how we're going to best our competition. Here's how you do an algebra problem. Here's how you throw a curveball. And they give short shrift to the concept of why. Why are we doing this in the first place? Why does it matter? And I'm convinced, if you look at the research, simply having an explanation of why you're doing something is incredibly powerful. And that and why is connected to vision. Because if a leader doesn't know why people are doing what they're doing, that, to me, is, is evidence that that leader has no vision. And again, this is not, I, I want to come back, this is not a kind of a preachy philosophical thing. There are just cold, hard facts and mountains of evidence behind this. give you some quick examples. Uh, let's take fundraisers for universities, people who are calling alum that ask them to donate money, that if you have those people who are making calls, read letters, from real people who are on the receiving end of the money that was raised there. So let's say they're raising money for a scholarship. If they read a letter from someone who got one of the scholarships and talk about how it changed his or her life before they go on and try to raise money, they do significantly better because they remember why they're doing it in the first place. And so those small kinds of things, if people have a connection between what they do each day and what the organization is trying to accomplish, and if they know why the organization exists, that's going to be an effective form of, of leadership. And, you know, if I, can offer, if I can be even more tactically prescriptive for a moment, one of the best things that leaders can do is this week have two fewer conversations about how and two more about why. Mm. And I really think that that simple, that simple, simple technique can make them more effective leaders. That's so good. All right. I love the tactical. So let's get tactical here for uh, our small business owners or any entrepreneur out there who it makes their living or is in the process of pitching all the time. 
I absolutely think if there was only one thing you read in the book, and, and this is brave saying this to the author, but I think your six successors <laughs> to the elevator pitch, in my mind, are absolutely gold because we've grown up in this idea of I got to have an elevator pitch. I got to have an elevator pitch. And you uh, on your blog, which you go into the videos, he's got videos, by the way, folks, uh, on the website. I want to make sure you know about that. DanPink.com. You can watch the videos. But Dan, give us a, a quick overview of the six successors to the elevator pitch. Yeah, I'm not saying that we should throw out the elevator pitch entirely. What I'm saying is that there's some new ways to pitch supported by the science. Um, one of them is to pitch with questions, uh, as we talked about before. Uh, so this is uh, some great research out of Ohio State showing that when the facts are clearly on your side, pitching with questions is extremely impo- important because people basically come up with their own reasons for agreeing with you. Uh, one of my very favorites is the uh, rhyming pitch. There's some great research showing, uh, I'll tell you quickly about the research, it's a study done at Lafayette College. They gave participants, divided participants into two different groups. One group, they gave a list of proverbs that rhyme. So things like woes unite foes, uh, caution and measure will win you treasure. And then the other group, they gave the exa- essentially identical proverbs, but in a way that didn't rhyme. It was woes unite enemies. Uh, instead of caution and measure will win you treasure, caution and measure will win you riches. Mm. And now all the participants, you know, the participants were being asked to evaluate, are these accurate accounts of the human condition? The people who had the pitches, that the, the proverbs that rhymed, they thought far more highly of the ideas than the people in the, in the proverbs that didn't rhyme, even though they said exactly the same thing. And when the researchers at Lafayette College went back to the group that had the rhyming proverbs, they said, well, did the fact that it rhymed matter at all? Everyone said, no, 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 not at all. So the punchline here is that rhymes increase what cognitive scientists call processing fluency. Uh, that is, it goes down easy. There are various things in, our, in language and in, uh, you know, this communication that increase processing fluency. You know, alliteration increases processing fluency a little bit. Repetition increases processing fluency. Saying things more than once increases processing fluency. Rhymes actually deepen your message. People are more likely to retain it, and amazingly, they're more likely to believe it. And so pitching with rhyme is surprisingly effective. It's not, you know, it's not cheesy. It actually can be really, really powerful. Uh, There's some great research on on another pitch. You know, every email is a pitch. It's a plea for attention. So there's some great research on what makes an effective email uh, subject line. Um, Three new software vendors for CRM to consider, all right? That's much better email. You're going to get that email opened up far faster than follow-up. Right. Um, and also curiosity. Make people curious about what's inside. You know, this is out of Carnegie Mellon. This research shows that you want to appeal to utility and curiosity in your subject or curiosity in your subject line. Make the subject line say, here's how it's valuable to you, or make them curious about it. But what happens, I mean, myself included, is that you end up with these kinds of middle-of-the-road um, goopy, not particularly effective subject lines like quick question, follow up, you know, another thing, and those emails don't get That's read. Right. 
So I want to review these really quick, folks, because this is in the book. There's the one-word pitch, the question pitch, the rhyming pitch, the subject line pitch, the Twitter pitch, and then the Pixar pitch, which is the idea of a pitch modeled on a narrative, and Dan has covered that earlier in our conversation. But, I mean, this is fantastic stuff. Uh, before I let you go, Dan, I, I love to ask this question of authors. And, again, the, the book is not brand new. It's been out a little while, but it's, it's fantastic, bestseller. I want everybody to go get it if you haven't read it. But, Dan, as you did the research on this and you began to pull this book together, um, what's one thing that you learned or one thing that maybe hit you a different way as you began to write this book? Okay, I'll give you – that's a great question. And I'll give you a the thing that, that – in, in, it has to do with pitching, actually. Um, uh, when I actually – believe it or not, there is some research on pitching itself. There's a, a fabulous uh, study, award-winning study – by uh, scholars at UC Davis and at Stanford, where they, they followed around Hollywood writers who were pitching their movie ideas to movie producers. And, you know, they spent several years with these folks. They followed them around. They knew which, they found out which pitches were successful and not. They had transcripts of all the conversations and whatnot. What, what, they, what they discovered was that the most effective pitchers were those who thought of the pitch as an invitation to collaborate. Mm. And that's, that's changed the way that I pitch. I used to think that pitching was you do a little soft shoe number, and they say, that's brilliant. You know, let me take out my checkbook. And that is absolutely not the case. It was really saying, uh, you know, ascend, you don't have to be necessarily explicit about it, but, you know, it's sort of, this is what I think, what do you think? You know, here's the first word. Why don't you contribute the next word, and we'll build something together? And that created more effective pitches and ultimately better products. And so it's less of a kind of an attempt to convert on the spot, but more of an invitation to have a conversation. And, and this research is so wow. good. It, it really changed how I end up uh, pitching. Much less kind of a vaudeville sh- you know, show number and a lot more, um, what do you wow. think? That's really good, folks, because many of you entrepreneurs out there, you're doing what you're doing. You're answering the why. You've answered the why because you believe it should be and could be done, and you're solving problems, whether you're making money or not, as a for-profit. The fact of the matter is that right there is a huge takeaway because we can do so much more when we collaborate. And not only is it a technique, it actually is a wonderful, wonderful outcome. So good stuff, Dan. Well, you know, we know how important your time is, and I can say this with confidence on behalf of our audience thank you so much for writing the books you write and for spending a little bit of your time with us we're better for it and we very much appreciate it well thanks it's been a pleasure talking to you thanks so much for having me he is daniel pink the book is to sell is human great stuff huh john absolutely love that all right so i know you're gonna love this we mm. tease this at the start of the podcast we're gonna give away five free copies from dan pink to sell is human here's how you qualify very simple stuff. You're going to tweet the at Entree Leadership Podcast sold me. The at Entree Leadership Podcast sold me. That's all you got to do now. You've got to make sure that you put the at Entree Leadership in there because that's how we track who has actually tweeted it. All right. And awesome. then you will qualify. We'll pick five 
lucky listeners from the hat as we did for the Charles Duhigg book giveaway. And hey, we send you free books. On behalf of John Falk and Daniel Tardy and the entire Entree Leadership team, very good stuff. So that's how you do it. One more time, here's what we want you to tweet. The at Entree Leadership podcast sold me, and you are qualified. So take advantage of that. Hey, I want to mention a couple things, John, while you're okay. here, All right. because uh, we're fresh off the road. Yeah. As we record this podcast, we are just off the road for our first Entree Leadership One Day event in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It was a fantastic audience it was. coming to Pittsburgh in a couple of weeks. Uh, let's talk real quick, 30 seconds on the Entree Leadership event, why people should consider coming. Oh, man. There's so many reasons why people know, should come to I know. But you know, the one day is just that big hit of everything that Dave teaches about how to win at business, how to hang in there, how to persevere, how to how to acquire the skills of being a great leader. Uh, he teaches most of it. Chris is there. Chris Hogan is there. Uh, Christy Wright teaches a lesson. So it is it is one of the best things that a leader can do to recharge their batteries, refocus, and uh, really take the hill on growing themselves, their team, and their profits. All right. I love that. And then real quick, the Entree Leadership Master Series, you want to dive deep and go super oh experiential. Right. Describe that event to us. It's a multi-day event. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah Week-long, top-shelf event, and it is the entire Entree Leadership playbook. It's everything that Dave teaches on how to win at leadership and business, everything he learned on that card table, uh, all the way to a team of 400 people and a major national brand. All right. Thank you, John, for that explanation. And again, entreleadership.com to learn anything you need to know about our great event offerings. Hey, I want to mention, we love to hear from you. And remember that email address, podcast at entreleadership.com. Reach out to me on Twitter. I always reply to people. Those of you who've tweeted me know that I am telling the truth. And if you want to give me some thoughts on the podcast, what you'd like to add, subtract, or anything else, just tweet me at Ken Coleman. Uh, John Falcons, thank you, my friend, for stopping by today. I know you had to step away from e-coaching you know, these entree leaders all around the country to hang out with us, but we're better for it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, we got to get it. you back in. Love it. You Will Tardy allow you to come back in? Can I get, get that permission now or what? Yeah, yeah. Consider it done. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, hey, folks, on behalf of John Falcons, our producer, Eric Anthony, and the entire Entree Leadership team, thank you for listening. We will talk with you again very soon.